Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. People say timing is everything. In this episode, we talk about timing and choosing the right job based on the team and institution. Jeff tells us that choosing where to commit your time as a fundraising professional is about more than just what you're passionate about. Where is the institution in its life phase? How can you make a difference within that context? Jeff suggests that we all ask ourselves that question. I was expecting Jeff to tell me how different all of his roles have been. On the contrary, Jeff tells us just how similar they are. He tells us more than the cause, the timing and the team are most important. Jeff Richard is the Vice President for Development at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Prior to this role, he was the Chief Executive Officer at the American Technion Society and held leadership roles at Columbia University's Office of Alumni and Development. Jeff also worked at NYU and the Jewish Federation of North America. Jeff is a graduate of Tufts University and holds a master's degree from Brandeis in nonprofit management. Jeff, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Development Debrief. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting to talk to you, most specifically because you've had such a diverse experience in your career, working in a couple of different areas within fundraising, medical fundraising, higher education fundraising, and even religious fundraising. And we've had a little bit of experience in all of those areas. I have. None of it was deliberate. Well, why don't you tell us more about that and how you made some of the, the big moves that you did? I'm happy to. Again, none of it was really deliberate. I am a pretty kind of literal and uh, type A person, but I don't think from a professional standpoint that I had any particular path in mind. The choices I made to to leave and start uh, new positions, sometimes in exactly a similar similar role or others kind of changing the types of organizations, really was an opportunity to work on behalf of causes that I feel extremely strongly about. And two is to work on behalf of organizations that are at a particular moment in time where I thought I, one, could bring a lot to the table and two, where I can learn a lot. So whether it was the journalism school at Columbia, which really was at a moment where thinking about the future of journalism and its role in democracy and how to become the institution to kind of lead that conversation. Or when I joined the American Technion Society, Technion had just opened its campus with Cornell on Roosevelt Island and changing, emerging as a global research university and how to kind of be part of that. Or in here coming to Sloan, we're at a really interesting moment in cancer research and clinical care, and we're going to need to really substantially increase philanthropy and to kind of be here at a pivotal moment where we're thinking how to do that, building on past success. To me, it's all about kind of what the opportunity is, both from a personal passion and to professional growth. I love thinking about where the institution is in its life and its cycle. Did you, though, think about the boss that you would be going to work for and the team? How did that play in? Very much so. When I left NYU to go to Columbia, number one draw was the dean I was going to be working on behalf of and the way he was thinking about the future of the school and what needed to happen and how philanthropy was critical to his being successful. The chemistry was 
perfect and Stoll is kind of one of the most cherished bosses and mentors I've had. In coming here to Sloan Kettering from Technion, Ken Minotti, who was at University of Chicago, NYU, and then came here, very much was about kind of his vision and belief that we could really raise more than we are. And to be part of that, to me, was exciting. So Did you find that the skill sets were generally the same in the different roles that you went to, or were there different strengths and weaknesses that you had to build and, and draw upon? Definitely the skills have, I've learned and grown with each position. I think each one kind of led to the other and I think built upon the skill set. I think the, the biggest change was my last position as CEO of the American Technique Society, where I was not only the kind of chief fundraiser and focused on principal gifts, I was also CEO of a, of a separate nonprofit that was raising money and granting money on behalf of a foreign institution, where for the first time I didn't have a boss per se or a professional who I reported to, I was reporting to the board chair. So the first time I was the kind of resident expert that didn't have someone who knew more than me that I was reporting to. And that to me was a whole different ball game and I learned a great deal uh, from that experience. Can you share with our listeners more about what American Technion Society is? It's a very cool institution in New York, and I don't know how many people know about it. Albert Einstein was actually one of the, the founders, and it was created to help raise money for the most part for the Technion Israel Institute of Technology, uh, which many people call the MIT of Israel. It's the leading science engineering school. Technion will say that MIT is the Technion of the U.S., <laughs> but... Uh, yeah a volunteer-driven organization of mostly American Jews who wanted to support the growth of the state of Israel through the Technion. Technion was established in uh, 1912, even before Israel became a nation in 1948. So Technion has been the institution that has really helped build the country, literally trained the first civil engineers to build the roads and water delivery systems, etc. And now is kind of at the center of the country's both health and economics, as well as defense. I joined after my predecessor had been at the organization for 32 years. Our mission was primarily to raise money on behalf of the Technion. So we would raise money and then grant it legally as a separate organization. Uh, and for IRS purposes, we weren't a pass-through, but we had to actually be a grant-making institution. And the other piece of the job of the ATS is about one, being an advocate for Israel and educating people about Israel and the technology that comes out. And also to be a communal organization where people can express their, their connection to Israel by being involved with the ATS. As CEO, I was doing a lot more than just fundraising, which I had um, had some experience at Columbia and senior leadership in the development office. But for the first time, I was worried about things like the office space and expanding it or about the audit committee and an investment committee, things about changing the bylaws and board succession planning. Uh, it, it was really a great experience and it's very similar to a yeah. lot of uh, American friends of organizations. Yeah, what was it like being so far away from the home base? It was challenging in some ways uh, and otherwise not. I think that for our supporters, it wasn't very hard to get them excited about the Technion, even though it was so far away, because they really understood its pivotal role in, in Israel, but also its role as a global university and its impact beyond. So many great um, innovations have come out of the Technion. I think what the hardest part was, how do you keep donors engaged and, and to understand the impact if they can't see it day in and day out? And I, and I kind of joked when I first got there that, you know, I thought Columbia, 
provide a little bit of training for that. I often found it so hard to get donors to come up to Morningside Heights with like <laughs> foreign country, like yeah. or people call it Connecticut. So, right. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for Midtown Manhattan, 40 blocks, and I was, you know, now I had to deal with a campus so far away, but, you know, being creative and innovative at how to show impact without actually physically being there, I think was interesting, challenging, but uh, also a lot of fun. What did you enjoy the most about being CEO? One of the things I really loved about ATS was its supporters, its donors. Uh, I really hadn't worked with such committed individuals who, even though the university was so far away, even though um, they didn't go there, you know, they, they weren't alumni, uh, there was such a deep connection and belief in the importance of the institution that I just got a lot of energy from our volunteers and our donors in a way that was really important. What I loved was the strategic planning pieces I got to be part of. So we, as I mentioned, my predecessor was there for over 30 years. And the big question was, how does an organization that has been successful pivot in the face of new realities? The sense of people's connections to Israel had been changing. The generation that were giving us a lot of money, their kids and grandkids were less interested in Israel. Some of the controversies, technology being really um, important, uh, moving away from some of the other things like defense that had been bread and butter of our fundraising. So really developing a strategic plan and working with my board and thinking about the future of the organization, not just its fundraising, but the organization itself and how do you get new new folks to be involved and younger donors. Um, to me, that was really, really interesting to kind of do that from a CEO lens as opposed to just the fundraising. Enjoyed that a great deal. Can you give us an example of one of the things you implemented to think about the future with ATS? The board. Mm -hmm. So um, a couple of things uh, we did. So one, we did our bylaws. Hard That's a big one. Our, I think, yeah, so the first time I kind of roll my sleeves up and kind of work in, in that level of detail on how a board operates and governance. So one of the things that we did were when we implemented term limits for the first time. Some of our board members had been board members for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We restructured the board such that the work that the board was doing was more meaningful and impactful and they could actually see how they were going to um, impact the future of the organization, uh, kind of moving our board meetings from sometimes feeling like a dog and pony show to real kind of work. And I think for a younger generation, that was really, that was the message I received when I went out around the country meeting with our supporters early on in my tenure with people wanted to do something. They didn't just want to come to meetings and feel like they were spoken to. So I think a lot of what we did was how do we create a more meaningful experience for our, our board members such that when we brought new people in, they could see their impact kind of instantaneously. Is that something that you had done in your previous roles? I mean, I know you weren't managing a board in the same way, but when you worked with volunteers at Columbia and NYU. At each of the schools I worked at NYU and at Columbia, um, I did work with the Dean's Councils and, and those mm -hmm. groups. And when I was supervising and kind of working in the Central Development Office, I did get to work with trustees and other and did learn a lot there and saw a lot of the more you engage folks and ask them to do something uh, that had meaning where they can give advice and guidance and not just feel they were being talked to, that you would get people much more deeply connected. And at the end of the day, that translates into more philanthropy. So I, mm -hmm. I think I did kind of learn the good and the bad from other experiences that I could bring there. When you ask for advice, have you had scenarios where the advice you're given you know you're not going to take or it doesn't quite fit and then how do you pivot from that i think that's kind of the double-edged sword of really engaging the board in a real way 
that's a really great question. In the strategic planning process we did for American Technion Society, we had four working groups kind of each looking at a big big question. Uh, the American digital relationship, our relationship with the Technion, a whole different sets of, of questions. And it was kind of the first time that we had such a large group of volunteers kind of involved in the strategic planning process. There were some amazing ideas and there were some that just either weren't the right strategy or that were just too difficult to implement and wouldn't kind of be worth the resources. What we did was we made sure that everyone's voice was heard and reflected in the minutes and the notes. And so no one was, no one was discounted on face value. So people can see. Two is if you really believe in the end, end result um, and can kind of justify kind of why certain decisions were made. And in the, the day, people want to be helpful and are able to be swayed and understand why you might not have gone a direction. Uh, and the other thing is to, when we didn't take people's advice, it was a, explained peer to peer as opposed to as the professional ah. that I was delivering that news. Mm -hmm. And I think having the buy-in from each of the chairs of the working groups and their commitment to giving feedback to kind of following up with people after meetings and saying, that was a great idea, but I think we're going to go this way. That didn't all fall on me. I think people take sometimes that feedback better from peers than they do from professionals. And we I use that strategy a lot. That's a good one. I like that. So for people who are thinking about trying a new arena, you know, maybe going from higher ed to a different kind of fundraising, um, I think you're in the perfect position to give perspective on that. What advice would you give to our listeners on making those shifts and the major differences between the different ways to fundraise? I truly believe fundraising is fundraising. I mean, I'm in this career and in this profession because I really believe in the power of philanthropy to change the world and, and make a difference and that we're partnering with people who have the resources to do that and help them realize what they can do and how they can make an impact and partner with them to, to see see great things happen, that's the same no matter where you are. Uh, if that's the kind of your approach to kind of you're there as a partner to help guide and someone to, to make, make an impact as well as as long being an organization that you truly are passionate about. Um, there's certain types of organizations, uh, even if they're aligned to, to some of um, the work I've done in the past where, where the mission or the, the, the cause just doesn't speak to me in the same way. So I think that philanthropy in, in general is, is similar across the board. And I, you know, there are unique differences we can talk about, but overall, I think that following your passion uh, and working on behalf of things that you know at the end of the day you feel really good about uh, supporting, uh, it doesn't matter kind of what type of organization it is. So you just mentioned that there are some places that align with your passions, but not necessarily the mission, is that right? Yeah, or or the the type the organization that I may be I really care deeply about um, a certain issue, but the organization might not be structured or might not provide. As I said the before, kind of I look at opportunities as one as a place to tap into my own passion, but two is where I really feel like I can make an impact, uh, or where they're at a pivotal moment where I can see myself adding value or or, or learning. And even if so, there's some organizations that have. A and not B, or some that have B and not A, and so to me that those are both critical pieces to choosing the right place to go next. Yeah, I think that's a really important nuance because it's not just as simple as, oh, the topic is exciting to me. There's so much more to making that decision and being really clear about that as the person who's looking for the new job. I care deeply about Israel, but there are a lot of great Israel 
Israeli-based causes out there that I think are important. But at the end of the day, what I really passionate about is science and technology and engineering and education, kind of advancing a society. And so HTS and Technion kind of fit that. Whereas other organizations, even though they're working on behalf of Israel, might not have kind of fulfilled the true passion or interest that, that I had. That would be the right professional choice. Right, right. So you're currently at Memorial Sloan Kettering. When did you start in your new role? June 3rd. So it's been nine months. What a big move and how exciting. It is. Thank you. It is really um, exciting and I feel very fortunate to, to be here. So what was the catalyst for your move of, of leaving as a CEO at an organization that you loved? How did you make that decision? One is the right search firm calling at the right time. And that <laughs> being said, what is the right time? So I think that uh, I loved ATS and I love the Technion and I'm still a donor and I still uh, are committed to the organization. Love I think to hear that, that. <laughs> uh, I was there for five years. So kind of at the beginning of my fourth year, I realized two things. First, I realized that I really missed living, breathing, and kind of thinking about fundraising and maximizing revenue all the time. There were so many other things that I had to do as CEO and leading the organization, including things like this and public speaking and, and other things that I really was missing thinking about fundraising all the time and drive and working with senior leadership of an institution to provide the resources they needed to move forward. So one is I, I knew I, I wanted to go back to being inside an institution and fundraising uh, all the time. And even more so kind of, or more important, uh, I realized that I was traveling too much. Uh, I was traveling a third to half of the time. We had local boards or we call chapters in more than 15 cities across the US. And we had full-time staff in at least 12 of those cities. We had a campus obviously in Israel. We also had a campus in China. And I just found myself not being home a lot. And uh, actually, I think it's something I learned from, talked to with your dad at one point, uh, just, you know, my kids were 13, 13 and 15, and they weren't going to be home that much longer. And I realized that I was spending so much time on the road that I was ready to have a position that focused on fundraising and where I was home more. MSK met a lot of, hit a lot of the first two points, a mission that I'm completely in alignment with and care deeply about. I've had friends and family um, not only with cancer, but I've been treated here at MSK and uh, working on behalf of that. And then two is it is a really important moment for cancer research and cancer care and MSK in particular. And there's a strong need to grow our fundraising and to be kind of part of that rethinking. We've been extremely successful. Uh, we raise more than any other cancer center uh, in the country. At the same time, there's a lot of opportunity. And so to me, being part of that seemed like a really exciting next step. I love that you're thinking about your career in such a holistic way as it works professionally, but also with your family and your personal Yeah, you have to. And I think, you know, some people question, I'm going from being the number one, a CEO, to, to an organization where I'm the vice president for development reporting to the senior vice president for development who reports to the CEO of the hospital. You know, my answer is it's a very different job. So I moved from even compared to Columbia, which is a big institution, it's a $5 billion operating budget. We have more than 600,000 unique donors every year. We have a database of millions. So it's a, the scale is so oh, that's different. Staggering. And to me, that was really interesting. And to be able to do things at that scale, to me, was something I, I'm not sure I would have the opportunity to do anywhere else. So it was really interesting to come here. Did you feel comfortable making the move in such a senior role without having had medical background? I did. Uh, I think for a few reasons. One is starting my last three years at Columbia, 
and particularly, and then again at Technion, I was in the world of science and research and engineering. And so Technion was one of the few leading engineering schools that also had a medical school. And so much of our fundraising was health related and kind of the intersection of engineering and medicine. Even though I hadn't worked at the hospital and uh, we didn't have grateful patients, I was talking a lot about, we had a big integrative cancer center. We were talking a lot about quantum science and imaging and how they're related to health. It was familiar space in some ways. Yeah. I, I didn't think it was that big a difference, uh, though there are things that are definitely different about healthcare and cancer, a hospital in particular. My colleagues have been amazing at kind of bringing me up to speed and I, you know, I think they're learning from me, I'm learning from them. And that to me what makes it work really interesting. What have you been most surprised by? I think two things. I've been more surprised by the similarities and the differences because I did hear by even by That's your question, cool. a lot of people said to me, oh, healthcare hospital fundraising is so different. And there are definitely differences, which I'll talk about. But overall, you're doing the same thing of working with people who care about an organization, a mission, a, a cause, and helping them realize their ability to, to make an impact. So that work doesn't change. I think different than higher ed or communal-based organization like ATS, there are many more donors and in turn large gifts, the donors who are more who are quite comfortable with a more transactional relationship than I was used to. Mm. This I think is particularly true with cancer institutions. For many it was the darkest period in their life and it's something that they don't want to be reminded about day in and day out. They want to support the institution, they want to help others, but at the same time they want to get in and, and get out. It's not all donors obviously, and uh, but there is a segment of our population that want to be helpful and want to make a gift, but they don't want deep involvement. So mm -hmm. one of I think our big challenges moving forward is how do we build and strengthen relationships with folks to really build long-term connection to, to MSK? Uh, as we know, the longer, deeper the relationship, the more involved people are, often produces transformative philanthropy. So for people who, particularly patients, who might not, again, this wasn't a happy time for them, how do you keep them connected, make them feel good? And, and even if they're not patients, how do you bring them in and create a meaningful engagement? I mean, I think at a university, it's much easier as I've seen. Yeah, that's so uh, interesting because we're, we're talking to people theoretically about some of their best years, you know, really fond memories, really great time of their life. And it's not so much the case for your grateful patients and your donors. It is, and some, again, even, even patients with a very positive outcome, can still feel not so good about their experience. And people who, who did not have a great outcome, their families are really grateful and want to be connected. So it really is individual. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, again, I go back to Columbia, I do think you are working with a lot of people who have very fond memories. But I think starting at the J school was really a good experience because at the time I was there, I met with a lot of alumni who did not have positive experiences and were maybe bitter about it. So kind of learning to turn them around, kind of, I think, is helping me here uh, as well, kind of be more empathetic to wanting to support an institution that may not have had the best memories. How do you handle that as you're managing your staff or working with a donor directly when they express a negative experience? Do you just listen? Do you try to fix it? What do you do? As fundraisers, I would speak for myself, but I think in general, we, we're in this business because we care about people. And so our first instinct is to try to help. Uh, mm -hmm. And that might not always be the right thing to do. So I think listening is first and foremost. I saw it at Columbia and even at, at Technion as well. We would bring donors to campus and, you know, they'd have some negative things to say about 
the food or the or how hot it was or whatever it is. And here too, you know, we're dealing with huge medical institutions. Some people who are, you know, obviously a, a number of our donors are patients. Though I will say, if you ask me back to what surprised me, is how many donors are not connected to MSK as patients. Oh, really? Uh, the overwhelming majority of our donors of our all 600,000 who give every year are not connected, are not patients. That being said, the larger the gift, usually there's more of a connection, but it's really only about 50%. So there are a lot of people who understand how important our research is. We have a hundred, over 100 labs doing basic science research and translational research. What happens here really impacts cancer care um, around the world. And so we have a lot of folks who want to be part of that who may not have a clinical connection to what we do. Would you say that they probably have some sort of family connection or is it truly interested in the research? So I think that there are many who have true basic interest in the work we're doing and science is very interesting. Uh, I think even when I was at Columbia and um, at Technion, there are many people who weren't affected or involved with the science per se as beneficiaries, but who are really interested in, in really good science. That being said, I don't I don't think I can name a person that I know that has not been touched by cancer in some way. Right. Uh, and so no matter where they're treated, there was a great example recently uh, we had on our on our, our website about a woman in um, Los Angeles who was treated for uh, a rare cancer and had a very positive outcome. And the drug that was used was developed here and the clinical trials were done here at MSK and the patients being treated in, in, in LA. So what happens here really does impact cancer treatment around the world. And to me, that's really what excited me about being coming here. And I think it's motivating for a lot of our, our donors. It's just not our patients here in New York. It's anyone facing a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, that's incredibly exciting. So just to scale out a little bit more broadly, can you give us a sense of how big your team is and how you're organized? Sure. We're organized probably very similar to the way you're organized or most, we don't have school directors per se, but as far as the central office, so we have principal gifts and major gifts. We have our leadership giving and annual giving. We have foundation and corporate relations, our plan giving, and we have a huge direct mail operation. You know, we mail out more than 13 million pieces a a year and 600,000 donors, you know, more than two thirds give via direct mail or online. So we have a huge kind of direct response giving, which reports into me, which is something I haven't done before. Yeah, uh, and it's been really um, eye-opening. And you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to me to, to learn the connection between direct mail and plan giving and how they kind of feed each other uh, in a way that I don't think happens at a, a university where so many of our estate donors really came to learn about MSK through direct mail. And that's been really a good, interesting learning experience. In my portfolio are a bunch of the, our fundraising units, but I think the thing I was brought on to, to focus on uh, is our next campaign. So in addition to being, my title is Vice President for Development and Campaign Director. It's been a few years since we've been in campaign and my core responsibility is to work throughout the development organization. Some of the kind of, one of the only positions that allows me to kind of work with everybody to help plan and implement our next campaign. Now I really am understanding more about why you took the role. That sounds so exciting. It is. It is. And we had a very successful campaign that ended in 2016. Uh, It was a campaign that was long by campaign standards. And so the question now is, can we raise more than last campaign in a shorter period of time? That's uh, what we're doing now. Right. So, and I have to say, I owe 
two people who've been on your podcast before, Susan and Fred, uh, a great deal of thanks for helping prepare me for this because I do think I learned such a great deal at the Columbia, working on the Columbia campaign. So uh, I'm really optimistic, um, but our needs are, are tremendous. Science is really expensive. And ability for us to kind of really continue to lead both on the research side and the clinical side is going to take tremendous philanthropy. And I'm excited to build on this incredible base we have. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision for this current campaign? So we're in early days. So Whatever not, you can share. I'm not, I wouldn't even say we're in campaign yet. We're in campaign okay. planning phase. The things I can say at this moment are not only is this campaign going to be about raising a lot of money to help propel the institution forward, but I think we have an opportunity to one, work more collaboratively as a development team. We've been so successful, but in many ways, certain pieces of the organization have not collaborated or partnered. I know one of the things you brought up, and I know Susan talked about on the podcast, on the podcast was shared credit. There's a lot of things we're doing to foster more collaboration uh, oh, amongst our teams. And I think the campaign is going to really help be a natural kind of catalyst for that, uh, as well as being more collaborative across MSK writ large. And how do we work with our peers to really create a, a, an energy around this campaign that is not only felt by development, but fell throughout the institution. And to me, that's also really exciting. What would be an example of departments working together? I can't really think of an example, partly because I don't know much about that arena, but. So internally, it's about just communicating more and max, our language is, we talk a lot about maximizing opportunity. A bunch of our, for instance, our plan giving staff travels the most. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the country who said we're in their will and they do a lot of traveling. So how do we ma maximize that opportunity? And if, if there is a prospect who's not a plan giving prospect, but is an annual giving donor or a major donor or is a foundation is located in that, how do we make sure everyone knows where everyone's going so that we are maximizing opportunity? And even if it's okay. not your department, we're doing a lot more of that internally. And then across the organization, how do we work more closely with marketing and communication? put out a lot of great stories. We have an amazing website. We do commercials and everything else. How do we make sure that people understand the role of philanthropy at MSK? And so how do we partner more with marketing communications to make that happen? So there's just a lot of maximizing opportunity and making sure we're right. not leaving anything on the table. And I think just thinking differently about how we can collaborate, I think we'll build upon our results in a way that we had in the past. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been always imagining that the majority of your prospects are in greater New York, but it sounds like that's really not the case. An overwhelming majority of our major and principal gift donors are local, but we have, and I would say overall, our donor base is primarily tri-state area because that's primarily our patient base. But we do have donors all across, I think in every, all 50 states and through, mm. particularly through our direct mail program, we'll see gifts come in, an, you know, a $10 check from a, a woman in Oklahoma City who knows of MSK, wants to help um, cancer research, and knows we're an institution that's doing good things. As much as we are regionally focused on our fundraising, we have to have a, a national perspective as well, and international. Yeah. We have a growing international team. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I know, you know, taking this time was not easy, given all the things you're working on, but I would love to wrap up with my final question, which is, what do you know for sure? I love that question. Two things, I guess, and they're kind of connected. I think what I know is that dreaming big is a really good and, and is a really important thing. As humans, we can do so much 
more than I think we even realize. And I think working in science and health and medicine, engineering, fundraising, kind of really see the power of just thinking out of the box and, and, and being creative. I, I just had a vacation where I went to the Panama Canal and did a lot of homework and kind of learning about um, the building of the canal and kind of the hundreds of years that people have been trying to figure out a way to get from one from the Caribbean side to the, um, the Pacific side and just what went into that and the fact that that, you know, I was staring at something that was built in 1913 and still working and people just, just dreaming and made that, made that happen. I, so I feel extremely lucky to be partnering with people who are doing that and providing them the resources that allow them to do that. And it's, I know that also that I'm really blessed to be in this line of work that can kind of provide the fuel for people to dream and kind of change our lives. Well, thank you so much. It was so much fun. It's my pleasure. And so I want to say thank you for doing this. Spoken to people who've listened to the podcast. And I think it's really important for our profession for people to, to learn from each other. So thank you to you. Thanks.